Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today's podcast is brought to you by Indiana University Press. Their Life of the Past series is lavishly illustrated and meticulously documented to showcase the latest findings and most compelling interpretations in the ever-changing field of paleontology. Find their books at iupress.indiana.edu. In our 216th episode, we have Dinosaur of the Day Megaraptor, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, we would like to thank some of our patrons who keep the lights on in our recording home office and (laughs) help us keep everything else going related to the podcast. And this week, we'd like to thank Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Janice, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Oliver E., Andrew and Helena Webb, Callum, Ricky, William, Red Sox Rex, and Jay. And Red Sox Rex and Jay just joined. So thank you both very much. Yeah, thank you. I think we're in the triple digits now. I think we've gone over 100 and then back down a couple times now. Yeah, hopefully this one sticks. <laughs> I hope so. We just added, when we get 10 more patrons, when we get to 110 total, we're going to put up a new noise-absorbing panel that we're going to use in some of our videos. So if you help us get to that, we would appreciate it, and it would make the audio sound a little bit better in our videos because the room we record videos in is a little bit echoey right now. So if you want to join this amazing group of people, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. We offer a bunch of different rewards. One for any level is that you can request a dinosaur of the day. Just a quick note here that we have had a bunch of dinosaur requests over the years, which has been great. But now we've had to limit it to only patrons to request dinosaur of the days though we still are working through a list from before we made that cutoff. Yeah. (laughs) So we're not taking any new requests unless you're a patron. (laughs) Yeah, just to clarify, because we do get a lot of requests from non-patrons, but we get inundated a little bit too much. And with just one dinosaur a week, we can't keep up with everybody. Yeah, so that's one of the perks and many more. Check out our page. And now on to the news for this week, we have an article that Professor Chris shared with us, and thank you for that. This one's by Manabu Sakamoto, who we interviewed like two or three years ago now, yep. Dr. Mambo Bob on Twitter, and a couple of other co-authors as well. But what they were doing was comparing the bite force of terrestrial amniotes, including mammals and dinosaurs, using these really long-term trends to sort of see which animals might have evolved stronger bite forces and sort of just the general trends of bite forces in different groups, evolutionarily speaking. It's not really dissimilar from Sakamoto's analysis back when we talked to him the first time about dinosaur diversification rates. Back then, he was talking about how dinosaurs weren't diversifying quite as quickly in the late Cretaceous as they had been in the Jurassic and Triassic. And you could interpret that as like they weren't doing quite as well or potentially the competition was heating up with other animals or something. And this kind of has a similar flavor to it. So what they were most interested in was finding areas where animal groups seem to quickly evolve stronger or weaker bite forces. So stuff that's different than just sort of average change in bite force over time. And most of the time, apparently animals just get proportionally stronger bites as their body size increases. That makes sense. Yeah, I suppose so. 
There are also a couple other factors that they could have used, like head size, but the two that they used were just the weight of the animal and the bite force to sort of model the difference. Interestingly, they found that Stegosaurus evolved a higher bite force at 11 times the background rate. Mm. So it kind of had this little spike in bite force increasing. <laughs> and Platyosaurus was 35 times the background rate. Wow. So quite the strong jaws relative to their ancestors. And they point out that since Stegosaurus is an early Thyreophoran and Platyosaurus was an early sauropodomorph, maybe this points to some sort of selective pressure going on with these dinosaurs. They also found that Deinonychus and other Manoraptorans also showed more bite force than expected, meaning sort of an increase in bite force per time over what's expected. And they found that there wasn't any shift between non-avian dinosaurs going extinct and birds, or even when they didn't go extinct when birds first evolved, which was kind of interesting to me because you'd think with such a major change in behavior, you might see a change in bite force, but they didn't see anything significant statistically in their data. There was one group of birds, however, that did really stand out in terms of rapidly increasing in bite force, and that was the finch at 55 times the background rate. I think that was actually the highest of any animal in terms of being an outlier, which led to a couple of good headlines because the finch has a 320 times stronger bite force pound for pound than T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> so you can make these comparisons between T-Rex and a finch. And a giant finch. Yeah, either you have to think of it as a huge finch or a little tiny T-Rex. Either way, it doesn't really scale properly, so it kind of makes sense <laughs> that they wouldn't be exactly the same. And the finch really only has a bite force of about 16 pounds, which is obviously tiny compared to a T-Rex. But they only weigh 33 grams, so 16 pounds or 70 newtons of force is pretty good. Not what I would have expected. No. But then I was thinking about it, and we always see birds kind of hanging from perches using their beak so they clearly have pretty strong bite forces to just be able to support their whole body weight mm -hmm. from their beak. But then again, a lot of animals have really strong jaws compared to humans, so <laughs> shouldn't be too surprised. They didn't have data on corvids, which I personally would be really interested in seeing because, you know, crows are pretty fearsome. And it'd be interesting to see right. what kind of bite force they have. And they remember you. <laughs> yeah. If they hold a grudge. And they can use tools and How all sorts of things. How badly can they hurt you? Yeah. Yeah. Although maybe if they're using tools and stuff, they might not need that strong of a bite force. They're just clever about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> as far as Tyrannosaurus rex goes, they said, quote, As an example, a T-Rex was most likely capable of pulverizing bones simply owing to its colossal size, approximately 5 to 10 tons. We did not detect instances of exceptional rates of adaptive changes in bite force in this taxon, and therefore there is no evidence of strong selection on disproportionately high bite force, end quote. And while I, you know, obviously agree with their analysis of the data that they put in there, it really works best when you're looking at the same body plan, because they still allow for a significant changes in bite force over time. It's just when you see big spikes in bite force that something looks strange. And since we think that dinosaurs started out primarily as carnivores, that's, you know, 150 million years plus of evolution to get to T-Rex. So if it's just slowly going up and up and up down their lineage, 
it still has a crazy strong bite force, even compared to other dinosaurs that are around the same weight. So it's like there wasn't this crazy spike that happened right at T-Rex, but that doesn't mean that it didn't slowly evolve a stronger and stronger bite force, just that it didn't happen for T-Rex potentially. As far as I can tell, they didn't test early Tyrannosauroids. They had some other later Tyrannosauroids like Tarbosaurus, but I didn't see anything like Eutyrannus in there, which would have been really interesting to kind of see if there was a big shift when we get those early Tyrannosauroids, kind of like they talk about with Stegosaurus and Palladiosaurus at the beginning of their respective little trees. So maybe with Tyrannosauroids, you had a shift earlier. But I don't even know if we have the fossil record <laughs> to test that. Like, I'm not sure if we have enough skulls of early Tyrannosaurids to get any information about that. I kind of think not. It, it basically looked to me like they put in as much data as they possibly could because they had over 400 animals in here. So I think as long as they could get good bite force data, they used it. Yeah, 400 animals is a lot. Yeah. Yeah, they covered quite a wide branch. They basically did all of terrestrial amniotes which has everything from like bats to reptiles, birds, mammals, tons of different things. Based on their analysis, they hypothesized that animals might not often seek prey that requires their highest possible bite force, and therefore it might not be selective. Basically, like, they kind of stick in their niche, and they don't really branch out too frequently, or it's kind well, of a slow progression. Also, why work harder than you have to for your food? Yeah, and they, they also said that they could potentially adjust their tooth shape and arrangement, and that might be a way around requiring a stronger bite force. So, for example, you can shift between grinding, piercing, or crushing bone by the alignment of teeth, which is basically what you see with T-Rex. It's that alignment of the teeth that really leads to the shattering of bones, which is similar to what crocodiles have, too, whereas, you know, if they had a different sort of tooth pattern, like shorter, sharp teeth, it would only be useful for ripping out pieces of flesh and not penetrating, crushing bone. One thing that I thought was funny is they said they found more instances of big reductions in bite force than big increases. And the most obvious example is humans. Hmm. <laughs> so our bite force is way weaker than it should be for our body mass. If you think about like a dog, dogs are similar in weight to us, and they're not too distantly related. We're all mammals. But a dog can bite so much stronger than a human. Like we, we just have pathetic bite force for our size. They proposed a couple of potential reasons for this. One of them I hadn't heard before, which is that maybe when we started processing and cooking food, there was less chewing required. And that, you know, anytime you can reduce a muscle in your body, it's a good thing because it's one less thing to maintain. It uses less calories, all that kind of stuff. So if we started cooking food maybe a million years ago or something, I don't really know the anthropology of this, then our jaw muscles could have started shrinking and leaving those resources for something else. The alternative hypothesis that they put forward was the one that I usually hear, and that's that our brains got a lot bigger, and then that kind of bulged out the top of our head and <laughs> sort of restructured our skull in general. But what it ended up doing is the geometry of our jaw is such that there just isn't a lot of space for jaw muscles because it's like our head is optimized for eyes in the front and big brain on top, and then the jaw is sort of like down at the bottom, afterthought, doesn't have any good <laughs> angles for the muscles, and yeah. So we're just kind of stuck with it. So if they studied crows, like you were saying, 
and how crows, maybe they don't have as high of a bite force as a finch, for example. Either of those could work. I mean, I have no idea if this is true, if crows do have a lower bite force than yeah, a finch. Yeah, because they didn't test it. But if they did, it could be, like you were saying, they use their tools. Yeah. So then you don't need to bite as hard down on your food or, you know, they're a bit smarter than most birds. Yeah, potentially. Like if they get to a point where they're just using tools to do everything, then maybe they wouldn't need as much bite force in their jaws and it would just slowly kind of go away. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose it's definitely possible. But again, wasn't tested, so we don't no, know. No, we really don't know. And who knows, for them, it might be really important to keep the jaw muscles because that's what they use to manipulate tools. Oh, true. Whereas for us, we have our hands and... That's what we use for the tools and cooking and everything, whereas our jaw is just kind of like the very end of the process. <laughs> and next up, thanks to Ian Brady for sharing this one with us, there was a talk by Molly Range at the annual meeting of the American Geophysical Union, and it hasn't been peer-reviewed yet, but there were a lot of other authors who worked on this as well. I'm assuming that it will be peer-reviewed and published one of these days. But what they did is they attempted to model the tsunami caused by the Chicxulub impact that killed off the non-avian dinosaurs. And really, it's a mega tsunami, yeah. sometimes described as, which I really enjoy. The model that they came up with looks nearly identical to the model created a few years ago based on data collected by the peak ring drilling. Interesting. Which we talked to Sean Gulick about, where basically they took an oil platform out into the Gulf of Mexico near the Yucatan Peninsula, and they drilled almost a mile down to sample the peak ring. And based on that, they kind of managed to put together exactly how the impact progressed, like on a second by second kind of basis. So we basically have a model of the impact or hitting and then all the earth sloshing around briefly and you know before it's settled back into that peak ring and because of that we can get a much better idea about how it impacted the water on top of it the early models didn't include water but this new one does and really adding water was much more interesting than i expected because even though the caribbean is and still was back in the mesozoic relatively shallow compared to a lot of the ocean it still has enough water in it that when a huge meteor or comet or whatever it was slams into the earth, it can displace a huge fraction of that at the same time and make just a massive wave. So to sort of describe it a little more specifically, what happened when the impactor hit is everything within about 30 kilometers of the impact site flash boiled or otherwise just shot off way into the distance. <laughs> But then there was a huge thrust of land that pushed outward about another 100 kilometers, kind of like a massive bulldozer. Oh, gosh. Just going, I don't know if it was supersonic, but very fast, just this huge wave of land blasting out. I didn't realize it. It was in the earlier models. You could see it if you were looking at the edge and kind of paying attention to the sliver of land blasting out to the side. That must have been so disorienting in those last few seconds of whatever animals were around. Well, yeah, any birds or anything that was there? I mean, <laughs> yeah. it probably would have gotten knocked back by the air blast because there was, we talked about like the hundreds of miles an hour of air blast and the crazy pressure wave. But this land, they have a little model of it and it's more than 40 kilometers above the surface of the earth, hmm. this like wave of land, which is an insane height that's like way above where planes fly. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a nightmare scenario, this like huge wall of land flying at you. So 
What that did, though, is it pushed all the water that was in between, you know, the sky <laughs> and the surface of the earth. So the entire Caribbean, basically, for many kilometers. And in their model, it goes about 100 kilometers before that sort of wall of land falls back to the earth. And then the upper reaches of it kind of broke off and then rained back down kind of like little meteors or something and made little splashes off, you know, 200, 300 kilometers out in the distance. So all that is to say <laughs> that this huge bulldozer of land flying through the Caribbean made a wave that was about 1.5 kilometers or almost a mile high hmm. because even though it's only, you know, 100 or 200 meters deep, it shoves several kilometers of this all piling up into this one massive wave. And then since Panama wasn't constructed yet, the water also rushed through into the Pacific kind of backwards around it. So this big old wave goes blasting out into the Atlantic. It kind of reverberates in the Caribbean and shoots out into the Pacific too. And then the whole earth just kind of rings with waves going everywhere for two days. There's like tsunamis just basically bouncing off California and then back over to China and all over the place, just like crazy waves all over the earth. Essentially all of the coastline on the entire planet was getting hit by massive tsunamis. In their model of it, too, they, they did two days worth of tsunami, and it's still, like, going. <laughs> you know, it's still going while two days later, there's still waves hitting places. It looked like, from my estimations, it's really hard to tell because it's not a very high-resolution map. The whole world was essentially hit by about 10-foot or 3-meter waves, like, even in the farthest reaches. In the area immediately around the Caribbean and, like, the North Atlantic and stuff, it was obviously much higher. And we've talked about that before, that it was like 50 to 100 meters even at some places. But the fact that the whole earth was hit by like a 10-foot tsunami is just insane to me. And actually, it could have been a lot worse than that because that's before it actually hit the coast. That's basically the size of the wave in the ocean. But if you know about surfing or you've gone out snorkeling or seen any videos of tsunamis, you know that what happens is when the wave reaches land, it gets pushed up onto the land. You know, it kind of goes up that gradual slope and the wave can get a lot bigger. Mm -hmm. So we don't really know exactly how big it is because we don't have topographic maps from 66 million years ago around the earth. So the best we can do is say like a oh, 10 foot, three meter waves near the shore. But as it came inland, it could have gotten much, much bigger. Right. It's just crazy. Bad times for all. Yeah. The only spot that might have been okay, that it looked okay, sort of, on this map was the very northernmost part of North America and Asia that border the Arctic Ocean. <laughs> because the Arctic Ocean is kind of tricky to get to from the Yucatan Peninsula. It like, requires too many bank shots. There's also this little tiny gap in between Australia and Antarctica that seemed like the bank shots didn't quite work to cause a huge tsunami there. So the polar dinosaurs were the most okay. Maybe. But then there's like a whole part of Antarctica that got nailed because it just went straight down into the South Atlantic right. and the South Pacific too and just like hit it almost okay, so dead the, on. the polar dinosaurs in the North were okay. Yes. And then the maybe North some Pole in the South. Ish. But there, the North Pole is also closer to the Chicxulub impact, mm. especially by North America. So it was probably engulfed in flame anyway. So <laughs> It's just no good place. No, it's crazy. They also compared it to the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, which killed over 200,000 people. And they said that the Chicxulub-caused tsunami would have been 2,600 times more energetic. 
which is quite a bit more. I almost expected another order of magnitude that it would be like a million times. Mm -hmm. There were huge waves that came out of that, obviously, and affected not just India, but also the whole surrounding area. And yeah, so you multiply that by two to 3,000, and that's what the world was dealing with. Pretty nuts. No wonder so many species went extinct. Yeah, yeah, that definitely doesn't help. Especially to that point, the huge amount of energy shifted sediment all over the place. And some of that was even within the ocean, because if you imagine all this land bulldozer going through the Caribbean, obviously any like little invertebrates or something living on the bottom of the ocean there is going to have a really bad day. Mm -hmm. So that's going to really just disturb all the oceans as well as the land. So I was trying to think what species would it have been best to be on that day? I think the only one that's good to be is like hibernating in a burrow underground. But is the burrow (laughs) deep enough? I don't know. Hopefully, I'm sure it would have woken them up. Yeah, the like magnitude 10 earthquakes or 11 or whatever they're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. It's bad. It's a very bad day for sure. But that was the first time I had really understood just how much it disrupted the ocean because thinking about all this energy in the water would really screw with the seafloors quite a bit, especially in the shallower areas. Yeah, there's just no good place. Nope. It's like the first comes the water, then comes the fire. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe the other way around, depending on exactly where you are. And then comes the... the starvation. Yeah, the nuclear winter for several years. Mm. Bad news. Mm-hmm. Kudos to the species that did survive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it worked out for us. Yeah. <laughs> well, in happier news in Mexico, also modern-day Mexico, <laughs> the Planetario Alpha Museum in Monterrey Nuevo León in Mexico has an exhibit called Dinosaurs Made in Mexico, and it displays discoveries that have been made over the years. So paleontologists Rene Hernandez Rivera and paleoartists Louis V. Ray worked on the exhibit, and they have large-scale posters of Ray's work, animatronic dinosaurs, and, of course, a place for kids to dig for fossils. So if you're in the area, the museum's open Tuesdays through Fridays from 2.30 to 7 p.m. and then 10.30 a.m. to 7 p.m. on weekends. Nice. Yeah. This next item is pretty interesting. I thought it was worth mentioning. So a geologist from Punjab University in India, Ashu Kosla, recently said at a conference that the Hindu god Lord Brahma discovered dinosaurs. And he also said that dinosaurs have been studied in India starting around the 1830s. So, quote, he said, Lord Brahma discovered dinosaurs' existence on Earth. India was a hotspot for dinosaur evolution and breeding before extinction. A dinosaur named Rajasaurus had originated in India, he said, end quote. It was interesting. He and a few scientists made... Some interesting claims at this conference recently. And Professor Sani, who uh, Kosla was one of his PhD students, didn't agree with this and said, quote, it is very unfortunate that such statements are made, end quote. <laughs> That's such a funny, like, political way to say it. Statements were made. They were unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't really know the thinking behind this. In terms of when dinosaur fossils were found in India, the first ones were found in 1828 by Captain William Sleeman from the East India Company Army. Four years after William Buckland published a description of Megalosaurus. Yeah, for sure. I mean, India was definitely just like the rest of Earth, covered in dinosaurs, very interesting ones that were evolving rapidly. Mm-hmm. Rajasaurus was a cool one, but because he said Rajasaurus originated in India, mm-hmm. sort of implying that dinosaurs themselves or significant dinosaurs 
originated in India, but we don't even know the Rajasaurus originated in India. Like it could have evolved anywhere in Asia or really in the right. world and then migrated there. That's just where we found it. Right. So you, that's what you could say about any dinosaur. Exactly. There's there's no there should be no nationality <laughs> assigned to dinosaurs. Right. It's Since those countries goofy, didn't exist. They didn't exist. They weren't like India was down by Africa for the most of the time the dinosaurs were around. And they definitely didn't abide by modern national boundaries. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of funny. But it's very possible that people in India discovered dinosaurs a long time ago. Sure. It's the a reasonable thing to think. The first description of megalo... Well, what we now know is a megalosaurus bone was published in 1677. So mm-hmm. people just didn't know what to call them yet. Yeah, they didn't know that they were giant extinct reptiles for quite a while. Yeah. Speaking of dinosaurs in Britain, in London at Greenwich Theatre, there's two one-hour dinosaur plays running between January 16th to 19th, so if you're in London, you should go see them. First one's called Carriages and Correspondence. It's set in London in 1856, and it's about William Buckland. He's on his deathbed in a private asylum. I don't really know why. And the journalist is trying to get his deathbed confessions. Hmm. And the second is called The Dinosaur Jacket, and Edward Drinker Cope and Othniel Charles Marsh talk about their rivalry, and the play's also set in present day. I was a little confused by the description, but there's a group of amateur paleontologists that find something big in Oxfordshire, and during this, a wife finds out a secret about her husband. So not entirely sure how all the threads will fit together, but sounds interesting. Performances are at 7.30 p.m. if you're there. That is interesting. I'm guessing the something big that they find is either... A living dinosaur or an extinct dinosaur? Yeah. <laughs> Don't know about the husband's secret. That he is a dinosaur. He's a dinosaur. <laughs> or he's hiding a dinosaur. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and last, Turok the Dinosaur Hunter is getting a reboot by Dynamite Entertainment. Oh. Yeah, it'll be called Turok. It will be a comic book. It will be set in the 1870s in the Colorado Badlands. And Turok's going to have to rescue his younger brother, Andar, from the U.S. Calvary. And then they all end up in a valley with prehistoric animals. <laughs> Ron Mars and Roberto Castro are working on the series together. And they said there's going to be a lot of dinosaurs and many surprises. That is not what I expected when you said Turok the Dinosaur Hunter is getting a reboot. Yep. Because the only thing I ever did with Turok the Dinosaur Hunter was a video game where you shot dinosaurs. Yeah. They're trying something slightly different. <laughs> Cross-platform. <laughs> And now we have a word from our sponsor, Indiana University Press. As Garrett mentioned earlier, they have the Life of the Past series, which is beautifully illustrated and documented, showcases the latest findings. I want to mention one of the books in the series, which is Oceans of Kansas, second edition. Revised, updated, and expanded with the latest interpretations and fossil discoveries, the second edition of Oceans of Kansas adds new twists to the fascinating story of the vast inland sea that engulfed central North America during the age of dinosaurs. Giant sharks, marine reptiles called mosasaurs, pteranodons, and birds with teeth all flourished in and around these shallow waters. Their abundant and well-preserved remains were sources of great excitement in the scientific community when first discovered in the 1860s and continue to yield exciting discoveries 150 years later. Michael J. Everhart vividly captures the history of these startling finds over the decades and recreates in unforgettable detail these animals from our distant past and the world in which they lived, above, within, and on the shores of America's ancient inland sea. Yeah, sometimes it's nice to read about what coexisted with dinosaurs. And I know a lot of people are really interested in those marine reptiles, especially. Mm-hmm. 
some of them were just as big. And since we don't talk about on this show, if you want to learn about them, you should get this book and read about them. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> so you can find this book and more from the Life of the Past series on their website at iupress.indiana.edu. And now for our Dinosaur of the Day Mega Raptor, which was a request from Andrew, Andre, and Jake. So thank you. Before I get into the Dinosaur of the Day, I just want to mention again, like we did at the beginning of this episode, that we want to thank everybody for their dinosaur requests. But we have so many right now, we can only take requests from patrons, people who are patrons at patreon.com slash inodino. We will still be doing requests from people who requested before we changed our policy, but we can only take requests from patrons. So back to Megaraptor. Megaraptor was a theropod that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Patagonia. And the type species is Megaraptor namunhuequiai. The genus name means giant thief, and the species name means footlance. It's a Mapuche Indian name. It was named in 1998 by Novas based on a claw that was about 13 inches or 34 centimeters long, possibly up to 16 inches or 40 centimeters long with a sheath. And that looked like the sickle claw of a dromaeosaurid. Yeah, so just a quick reminder. Usually what we find is just the bone that's the part of the claw in all sorts of animals that have claws <laughs> underneath the actual nail, which is the like big, sharp, crazy, pointy part. So if you have a pet cat, you might have occasionally see them rip off their sheath and then they have this little sharp bone point underneath it. But most of the time they have a nail sheath over it. Occasionally, though, we do find fossilized claws with the sheath on top of it, which is amazing. And it gives us a good idea about how big these sheaths could be. But they can be up to like... 50%, even 100% larger than just the claw itself. So if you're ever in a museum looking at these claws on something like a mega raptor and you're like, that's a really big claw, you can in your head add <laughs> just another like 50% or something to the size of that claw. And that's how big they would have been while it was alive. <laughs> yeah. Very glad not to run into a mega raptor today. Yeah. Considering the bone alone was over a foot long. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of claw. <laughs> So this claw was later found to actually be the, on the first finger of a hand, not a foot claw. And that's because a complete front limb was found later on. Yeah, so they named it Megaraptor thinking, oh, it's a dromaeosaur. It's oh. a raptor. Look at this claw we found. And yeah. it's like, oops, that's on the hand. Nope. Very <laughs> different. <laughs> Megaraptor's hands were elongated. Makes sense with the giant claw. Mm -hmm. It was carnivorous. Again, it was originally thought to be a large dromaeosaur-like celurosaur, but now it's considered to be either a basal tyrannosauroid or a basal celurosaur. Gregory S. Paul estimated in 2010 that Megaraptor was about 26 feet or 8 meters long and weighed 2,200 pounds or about 1 ton. You can see Megaraptor in the game Warpath Jurassic Park, which was made before the claw was known to be from the hand, so it looks like a large dromaeosaur, and its code name is M. Raptor or Raptor. <laughs> nice. Megaraptor is a really cool one. So one of the many examples of fossils aren't always what they seem yeah. in paleontology. And our fun fact of the day goes back to that crazy tsunami because these weird events always send me down rabbit holes of like, I wonder what about this? What about that? So that movie Poseidon came out not that long ago. And I was trying to think, how big was the wave, that initial wave by that land bulldozer compared to the Poseidon wave. 
And so according to the model, the initial wave created by the impactor is about 1.5 kilometers high at the crest. So nearly a mile tall. <laughs> it's an insane wave. The tube created under the wave would have been at least half a kilometer or 1,800 feet in diameter if it was created this, the way that it looked in the simulation, which is crazy. I mean, you think about surfers going through a tube, you know, how big are those? The, the ones by Hawaii, maybe they're like 30 feet in diameter. If you have a 50-foot crest, this thing is 1,800 feet in diameter. And unfortunately, the, there's like no way you could actually surf through it. It would be so cool if you could, but it wasn't nearly as stable as one of those nice barrel waves. It would have been all over the place moving too quickly. You would have just gotten crushed. But in any event, that 1,800 feet is big enough to fit even the largest super tanker ever made <laughs> inside it. And actually, it wouldn't be that different than the poster from the Poseidon movie, except that the real wave was about twice as big. Oh, jeez. That one of like the cruise ship, you know, the yeah. poster I'm talking about, like on the side of a wave, like at, at least twice as big as that poster is wow. like, what it looked like. Scary. Yeah, that's insane. Really glad I wasn't around on that day. Yeah, you probably wouldn't have made it much longer than that day. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can listen to our podcast pretty much anywhere. Also, get in touch with us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Our Patreon page. <laughs> yes, that too. And also if you want to get some cool rewards, then yeah, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.